Well, even with many of us out of town this week and this weekend, good things continue to go on. We're very thankful for all of the people who came down Saturday to help with the teddy bear workshop. We appreciate so much the work that Patty Willoughby puts into that effort and the coordination of all those volunteers. We also appreciate everyone who came for our library work day. And before you leave this evening, I would encourage you to walk down this hallway right here to the very end of the hallway and take a left right before the stairs and look at some of the new books that we've put in the library. Uh, Tony Fluallen is our deacon over that ministry, and he's done a wonderful job of organizing these books, and they're going to be some great resources for us as we teach classes and as we study in our personal time and as we try to grow closer to God. So I hope you'll check that out before you leave. Also, one final reminder that the timeline that's out in the foyer will be there only for tonight. And after tonight's over, we're going to laminate it and put it up in a hallway. So if you haven't signed uh, your name or the name of a friend or family member who is a part of the church family here, uh, you want to be sure and do that before you leave and preserve that piece of of history as uh, we honor the work that God has done uh, through Christians here for years. This morning we focused on the concept of identity and authority. The title was What's in a Name? I knew that I wanted us to study 2 Kings chapter 5 this evening, and and I was sitting in my office trying to come up with the title. What would be the appropriate title? And I didn't know how I was going to find just the perfect title. I had already had What's in a Name. That was the chapter title for the morning. And then Phil walked in the office. I said, Phil, what would be the perfect title? And within five seconds... We had the title, Examining the Life of Naaman, What's in a Naaman? What's in someone like Naaman? And I told Phil that I would go ahead and let everyone know that it was his idea, just in case he didn't like it. So you'll know who to talk to for that one. But as we think about the story of Naaman, I want you to try and take a journey with me this evening. I want all of us to honestly try and put ourselves in the place of someone who is very, very successful. I don't know what business that you might work in or secretly have desires to be successful in, but just imagine that you've become a great success in your business, that you have a huge home, that you have a wonderful estate, that you have uh, families, that you even have people that live with you that are your servants. And just imagine that you are so good at your job. You've excelled so much in business that you have a reputation that extends beyond even just a little area that you live in. In fact, the entire city knows of your reputation. It extends so high up the government that even the ruler, even the president, knows of your reputation and what you've done. And as everything seems to be going well for you, you have all of this wealth and the prestige and the fame and the fortune. I want you to imagine what happens one morning when you discover that you have a terrible, terrible disease. That there's something that's, that's attacking your physical body that is, that is terrible and that is terminal. And you're desperate to find any kind of cure, even though you have this wonderful life, you have this one terrible problem. What kind of emotions would be surfacing in your mind when you made that discovery? How would you feel? Would you be frustrated? Would you be angry? Would you be sad? Would you be depressed? What kinds of emotions would be raging through your mind and and your heart as you tried to process all of this? If we can put ourselves in that place, I think we can understand better the story of a man named Naaman. And as we look at Naaman's life, we are going to see someone who seems to have it all, but finds out that he is in need of physical healing. This morning, we looked at several different passages of Scripture. 
This evening, I'd like for us to stay in 2 Kings chapter 5. So I'd invite you, if you would, turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 5. While you're turning there, let me let you know if you're visiting with us, we're thrilled to have you here. We'd love to stick around and get to know you after our worship service together. We want to encourage you in any way possible. And we'd also, as we begin in 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to read the first 15 verses. So it's going to be a lengthy reading. I hope you'll read with me in your Bibles. And we're going to try to get a sense of exactly what's taking place. And then we're going to step back from the big picture and look step by step at what takes place in Naaman's life. Let's begin in verse 1 and we'll work our way through to verse 15. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. So the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he had sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the far part of the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And the servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the sayings of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. We'll pause right there as we think about the first 15 verses of this chapter in the book of Kings. When we look through and we see Naaman's introduction in the very first verse, it seems like we have such a wonderful life that's playing out before us, doesn't it? Look at the words that are used to describe Naaman. He's a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. He was also a mighty man of valor. And then we'd just love for the sentence to end there, but it doesn't. The last few words of the verse says, Oh, by the way, he was a leper. But also a leper. He had all of these great things going for him, but he was also a leper. And as we look at Naaman's life and Naaman's problem, we see some spiritual applications that we can place. We can look at Naaman's actions, see how he dealt with his physical problem, and look at ourselves and see how we can deal in a spiritual sense 
with what we found, what we need cleansing from, what we need healing from. And the first thing we'll see that Naaman did as he is faced with this difficult situation is that he realized the need that he had. Isn't it interesting that even someone of Naaman's stature had such a serious, serious problem? In fact, judging by his reaction, he seems to have a serious form of leprosy. Leprosy is sort of a broad term that we see that can cover a a great many kinds of of skin diseases. Uh, Hansen's disease today is probably what's most commonly known as leprosy. But whatever we know about the leprosy Naaman had, we know that it was serious because he grows desperate. He's desperate because he begins to take the advice of the servant of his wife. There was a young Israelite girl that was serving his wife. She was a foreigner. She was a woman. And she was a servant. And all three of those groups of people were mistreated often in ancient times. All three of those groups of people had a lower status than what a mighty man of valor like Naaman would have had. And yet he listens to her. He's so desperate for a cure that he listens to her. Even a wealthy, famous, if we were looking for an equivalent today, we'd consider him a four-star general. Even a four-star general isn't immune to the problems that you and I understand everyone faces. It's interesting because our society seems to tell us that all we have to do to rise above our problems is to get more money, more wealth, and more power. And yet, haven't you noticed that sometimes it's more difficult for people to stay faithful when they have success on earth? When they have wealth on earth, sometimes it's easier for people to stay faithful if they're mistreated, if they're disappointed, if they suffer, rather than if they get everything they want, if success comes easily, if life goes great. That's when it's sometimes the hardest to follow God. That's when sometimes the greatest problems can arise. And yet our society keeps telling us that the answer to all of our problems is just to get enough money. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, an agent for one of our best known and maybe even infamous sporting figures, our best-known athletes in this country, stated that he had 25 million reasons to live. Isn't that a sad statement on our life, that we would look at our bank account or our paycheck, and that would determine how many reasons we have to live? That my desire to live life on earth would be determined solely by what I own or what I possess. It doesn't matter how much we have. It doesn't matter how much wealth and fame and fortune uh, Naaman had. There was something that didn't attack him on the battlefield. It attacked him as a disease. And he realized his problem. And once he truly understood his need, there was no price that was too costly. Did you notice what he loaded up with when he went to go visit and try to get healed from the prophet in Israel? In verse 5, we see that he took 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. No price was going to be too great for the healing that Naaman wanted. And we all understand this principle. And as I was thinking about our summer break that many of us are on and and some trips that uh, many of us are going to take, my parents are going next week to fly down to Orlando. And while they're in Orlando, they're going to spend time at one of the theme parks down there. And I don't know about you, but I love going down to theme parks. I love walking around, riding the rides. It's a lot of fun. But have you ever noticed that once you get inside the theme park, Any vendors or concession stands don't seem to be aware of what prices are for food and drink anywhere else in the world. Have you noticed that when you're walking around in a theme park, they know that they've got you trapped. 
They know that you've walked around all day in the hot sun, that you've ridden rides. Those of you with children, you've had to corral your children all day. And they know that you're so hot and tired and thirsty that you're going to pay four, five, six or seven dollars for a bottle of water or a Coke or whatever it is you can get your hands on. They've got you. They're your captive audience. And when you're, when you're desperate, there's no price that's too great. On a serious note, when something happens to us in our lives that's, that's really serious, that, that is, is, is life-threatening, maybe it's a, a, a struggle that a, a family member goes through or a loved one goes through, no price is too great, is it? We want to get the best help possible. And we'll figure out a way to pay for it later. We want to make sure that we can take care of that need. If it's physical, if, if, it's a, if it's a need that's emotional, we want to meet that need. And no price is too great once we see how great the need is. Naaman is sort of in the same situation. He understands how desperate he is, and he, he is in need of anything. There's no price that's too great. It, it would have been embarrassing for a mighty man like Naaman to go before the king and to say, say to the king that he's going to take the advice of a young Israelite servant girl. Can you imagine how that conversation would have gone as he stood before the king? I'm going to go into uh, to a man whom I've never met before, who my servant girl that works for my wife says can heal people, although I've never seen it before. It's going to take a few days and it's going to require a lot of my possessions. I'm going to load it up just in case. I don't know how much it's going to cost. Can you imagine how that would have sounded? Yet he was willing to risk that reputation. He was willing to risk everything because he understood how desperate his situation was. When we think of ourselves in a spiritual sense, we realize that every single one of us, while we haven't dealt with physical leprosy, all of us at one time have fallen victim to sin. It's a problem that affects every single person in this room and every single person outside it. And we're in desperate need. Before we become Christians, before we become a a part of, of, of the Lord's church, we're in desperate need. And there's no price that's too great. If we truly understand how much we need God, there's no price that is too great to pay. That's what makes the gospel such good news, is when we've understood the bad news. The bad news is that all of us have been affected by sin. All of us have sinned, and we need God's love and grace. And it's only when we understand our desperate situation, we can fully appreciate the fullness and the richness of God's grace. And so Naaman understood his need. He understood his situation. And that's the first step if we're going to become a part of the church that we talked about this morning. We have to realize that we're in need. And what's interesting is that he heard about the healing from this young Israelite slave girl. Now, for just a second, I want you to put yourself in her place. There's a raid of Syrians that have come through town. You've been separated from your family. Chances are you won't see your family again. You're definitely not living with your family. You're spending all of your young life every day serving someone who came in and and, uh, captured you, a wife of a famous soldier in this army. You've been taken away from your family, your friends. There were probably dreams that she would have had of, of, of being married, starting a family of her own, but now she's a servant. Now she's serving someone else. And isn't it interesting that in verse 3, she's still willing to share the good news about a prophet that can heal other people's diseases. I think that's fascinating. If you ever doubt the impact or the power of a single individual, then you need to look at the true hero of the story. This little girl who makes a statement that changes the course of Naaman's life. There are little things that we have opportunities to do every day, and we may never see the results of them, 
But if you ever doubt that they're worth anything, if you ever doubt that the little statements you make or the little encouragement you give or the little time you try to steer the conversation towards Christ, if you ever doubt that's worth something, look at the story of this girl. As I was thinking about this principle, I was reminded of a time when our team was coming back from our Ukraine mission trip. We had a one-day layover in Amsterdam, and many of us were able to visit Anne Frank's house. And we took a tour of the little the little stairwell that you, you crawl up, the narrow stairwell hidden behind a bookcase, and you go up into the little hideaway where the family hid for so long. You walk through and you see Anne Frank's room there. Some of the pictures are still on the wall, and they've, they've put a case over to protect those pictures that she decorated her room with. And you walk in the next room and you see uh, her diary, or more accurately, you see three diaries. She wrote enough to fill up three books. And, and you look at those, and I couldn't help but wondering... All the effect that that this story has had on the world, the thousands of of languages into which it's it's been translated, the thousands of people that that have bought the book, and it's just a small, simple little diary. They were just laying side by side that a little girl wrote in a little room in a little faraway apartment that no one knew about, but yet it managed to have an impact that that many felt all over the world that encouraged and inspired other people. And that principle is true in any aspect of life. What we do, even if they're little things, can outlive us. But nowhere is that more true than in the spiritual realm. John Maxwell, who is a uh, leadership expert, was speaking in the area recently. And one of the things he said that really got my attention was some of us wake up every day and we're looking for the harvest. And we go through all day looking for the harvest and seeing what's come up and seeing what we can take and seeing what we're ready to get. Some of us wake up every day and we go through the day looking to sow seed. We go through the day looking to, looking to plant ideas in people's minds. We may never see the result of that, but we're going to keep planting every day. As Christians, the story of this little girl contained in one simple verse that sends Naaman on a course that ultimately leads to his healing should remind me that I need to be willing to share the good news that I have that's far more important than someone who can heal my physical diseases Someone who can heal us spiritually. Are we sharing the good news with those people around us? Are we sharing the good news even with people that would be considered our enemies? Are we sharing good news with people we might not like to spend time around? She shared the good news with people that, for all intents and and purposes, were keeping her from living the kind of life that she wanted to live, and yet she was still willing to send them that message. And Naaman had to understand when he saw how difficult his life was going to be, when he saw that he was in a desperate situation, he had to hear about the possibility of healing. And we have people probably, I I know all over this county and all over the world, that are now realizing they're in desperate situations. Maybe it's financial times, maybe it's family problems, something is causing them to realize they're in desperate need of help. And it's our job to send them that word of the healing that's available in Christ. And so as we think about Naaman's life up to this point, we see that he starts trying to kind of use the wrong methods. Did you notice how Naaman's going to go about obtaining this healing? First of all, he decides he's going to use the wrong means. And so he packs up his chariot with all of those gifts and money. Even the most conservative estimates would say that that would translate to thousands of dollars in today's currency. And so he has all of this wealth and riches as if somehow he's going to go to Israel and this prophet and he's going to be able to buy his healing. 
And it's almost comical to think about Naaman buying his physical health, but sometimes when we come and we decide that we're going to become a member of the church and serve God, we can fall into that same trap of trying to earn what we're given. It might be a trap that resembles more of what Jesus dealt with in the first century when he had Jews and and Pharisees that were standing on street corners saying their prayers loudly so that everyone could see them. They were making themselves look terrible and sick when they were fasting so everyone would know they were fasting and adding up all of the legalistic points on their checklist so that they could get to be so good and so righteous that there's no way that God wouldn't let them into heaven. That those deeds were going to be what gets them in. And we realize, of course, that Naaman couldn't buy his healing any more than we can buy the grace that God's given us. And so as we look through, we also see that he goes straight to the wrong person. Now, he knows there's a prophet in Israel that can heal people. But instead of going and trying to find that prophet, he brings a letter to the king from the king of Syria. And it tells the king to heal him of his leprosy. And so Naaman, being a very politically active guy, probably was not interested in messing around with anyone who wasn't on the highest echelon of the government. So I'm going to go straight to the king. Well, obviously, this upsets the king. He doesn't know how to heal anyone. And he thinks that the king of Syria is just trying to instigate a war, instigate trouble with him. And so he's upset. And what's interesting is that when we think about Naaman going to the wrong person, I'm reminded of the fact that when we have spiritual problems, we know where we should go, don't we? We know who we should talk to. But isn't it tempting sometimes, instead of going to talk to God and bringing our spiritual problems to him, to talk to someone else? Have you ever fallen into that trap? When we have some trouble that we know we need to rely on God for, we might go talk and get someone else's advice. Or, or let someone else tell us what to do, rather than waiting to, to, to read God's Word, to pray to Him, to see what He might guide us to do in that situation. And yet, Naaman makes the very same mistake. He goes to the wrong person. He's got the wrong means, the wrong person, and he has the wrong expectation. It's almost comical to imagine the chariot that Naaman is in pulling up before Elisha's house. And he's waiting for the red carpet treatment. He's waiting for someone to come out, for Elisha to come to him, for there to be a big ceremony. And that he is a celebrity, obviously, that's rolled into town from Syria. He wants to be treated like one. And Elisha sends a messenger out and tells him to go dip seven times in the Jordan River. river that wouldn't have been the cleanest or the best or the nearest body of water. But that's what Elisha's messenger told him to do. It's interesting that sometimes I can bring the wrong expectations into my relationship with God. I can expect that when I become a Christian, all my problems will kind of clear up. And then if I had family problems at home, when I become a Christian, they'll magically go away. And my relationships will magically be wonderful. Or if I had problems with coworkers at work, that those problems will magically dissolve. And things will be wonderful, that everything will be wonderful once I become a Christian. And yet, when we become a Christian, it's not that we get a pass where we're immune to problems of life. It's that we get a source of strength to help us through those problems. And so we might try to use, like Naaman, the wrong means, the wrong, the wrong person that we'll go to, maybe even the wrong method with the wrong expectations. But Naaman learned a lesson in simple obedience. There's a number of reasons that he could have been offended that Elisha tells him to go dip seven times in the Jordan. Uh, it could be that he is offended by the fact, as he mentions himself, there were other bodies of water he'd rather go and bathe in it. He could be offended by the fact that Elisha is telling him he needs to bathe. You have a skin disease, you need to take a bath. But it could be, and probably from Naaman's reaction, most likely is the fact that he expected some grand ceremony. 
He expected the prophet to walk out to wave his arms over that place for the leprosy to be healed. Maybe he expected something that he would have to do, something uh, for a man who was used to heroic challenges that would really challenge him. And yet it's something simple. And so Naaman has to learn the lesson of simple obedience. And it's fascinating, if you notice how many times in the story, that when he simply obeys, that Naaman is taught by his servants. It was a servant girl who told him to go to the prophet, and it's a servant who takes him aside and thinks, if it had been something great, wouldn't you have done it? If it had been something complicated, if it had been something that would have been in public eyes, and public view, wouldn't you have done it? But now it's something simple. Shouldn't you go and do as he said? I think this may be the most challenging for us as we try to live a life more like Christ. That is, obeying the simple message of the gospel. As we've gone through our fall focus on Sunday mornings, we've looked at the nature of the church, and even this morning as we looked at authority, nothing that we've talked about has been overly complicated or complex. And sometimes there's a desire, even on the part of one who's teaching or, or preaching, to come up with some, some really complicated way of understanding a certain passage or a certain principle or some, some hidden, intricate fact that no one has ever heard of about this passage that you're going to bring out. But when it gets right down to it, the gospel is a simple message of good news. Simple doesn't mean easy. It doesn't mean that it's easy to follow. And simple doesn't mean shallow, that we just sort of stay on superficial spiritual levels and never plunge deeper in our knowledge of God or deeper in our knowledge of His Word. But it's simple to understand. Sometimes we can almost be turned off or have our intelligence insulted by the simplicity of the gospel. The fact that God loves us and He set up a way for us to have a relationship with Him. It just sounds too easy. There's not enough uh, that we have to, to do to get to that point. And yet, once we realize that promise, once we put Christ on in baptism, we realize that while the gospel is simple to understand, it's a challenge every day to live, and we need God's help to help us do it. As we think about Naaman's simple obedience, think about what it would be like for someone who's found that they're in a terrible situation, they're in dire straits, they've heard about the possibility for healing, when they simply obey they can achieve a healing they could never imagine. We've looked at Acts chapter 2 several times as we've studied the church. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, there was a large group of people who realized they were sick. They realized there was something wrong with them. They were in a desperate situation. They didn't know how to handle it. Once Peter had proclaimed the fact that this Jesus, whom you crucified, is both Lord and Christ. They cry out to Him because they've been pricked in the heart. They have a desperate sense of their own lostness. They realize what they've done, and they want to know, what will it take? What can I obey? And that's when Peter gives them that message, repent and be baptized. And it wasn't complicated. It was simple. But it was the simple, saving message of the gospel that allowed them to be added to the church. Naaman shows us the power of simple obedience. But real quickly before we close, I want us to look at one other person that we read about in this chapter. You see, what's interesting about this healing is that in most healings we read about with leprosy in the Bible, the leprosy goes away. But we see at the very end of this chapter that Naaman's leprosy is still around. The leprosy of Naaman does not totally leave the scene. And we find that out because of what we learn about Gehazi. 
And so let's start reading in verse 20 about the servant of Elisha, Gehazi. You may remember that Naaman had all those gifts he was going to present towards Elisha. Elisha, of course, didn't take any of them. And so Naaman went on his way. And then Gehazi in verse 20 says this. He says, look, the master has spared Naaman, the Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. It's interesting, this phrasing in the Hebrew almost indicates Gehazi saying, I can't believe he has denied Naaman the opportunity to give us all these gifts. I'm going to go and take something from him. And look at the serious phrase that he uses, as the Lord lives. I'm going to take something from him. It's amazing what we can rationalize if we want something badly enough. And Gehazi saw what Naaman had in his chariot, and he wanted some for himself. He pursued Naaman. And in verse 21, Naaman saw him running after him, got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? This is the same Naaman that pulled up in front of Elisha's house and was waiting for Elisha to come to him. And yet when he sees Elisha's servant running, he's changed so much in just these few verses that he gets out, showing a great sign of respect, gets out of his chariot and confronts Gehazi and says, is all well? And Gehazi says, all is well. My master has sent me saying, indeed, Just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. He spins a very plausible, very believable story for Naaman. That there are people in need. And he doesn't take too much. He doesn't want to make Naaman suspicious, but he takes just enough. And what's more is he thinks that he'll get away with it. But look at what he says when he's confronted by Elisha. In verse 26, Elisha says to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? And look at verse 27. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. The last verse of this chapter tells us that Naaman's leprosy hasn't completely left the scene, except now Gehazi is going to pass it on to his descendants, a reminder that our sins often affect other people. And very simply, I want us to look at the contrast between Naaman and Gehazi. You see, Naaman understood his desperate situation, but Gehazi was in a wonderful situation. Can you imagine any better living environment than to be alongside and serving with Elisha, the prophet of God, that God is working through powerful miracles? So Gehazi is in a wonderful situation. Naaman's in a desperate situation, and he realizes that there's a possibility of healing. He hears about a possibility for healing, while Gehazi starts to look around and realizes there might be a chance for him to realize some greed here, satisfy some greed. While Naaman followed God's commands, Gehazi broke them. I can't imagine spending much time with Elisha and not knowing that lying and taking something from someone unknowingly was wrong. He breaks God's commands. And as a result, the leprosy that Naaman started with ends up with Gehazi. You see, that's a challenge for us. Because once we become a part of the Lord's church, it would be tempting for us to look around and let something drag us away. And, and, and go after something and leave the Lord's church in effort of gaining our, our meaning and fulfillment somewhere else. And what's interesting is that the one thing no one can do to you, and that is separate you from the Lord, we can do to ourselves. The one thing no one can do to me, I can do, and that is separate myself from God. And so the challenge this evening is this. Do we want to be like Naaman, or do we want to be like Gehazi? Will we choose to live a life that constantly understands the state we were in before we became Christians and always reflects the fact that we are imperfect serving a perfect Savior? Will we live a life that always tells people about that healing and spreads that word so that others can come to know what it's like to be a member of the church? 
Will we live a life of simple obedience? Or will we let other things drag us away? The choice is simple, but that doesn't make it easy. And every single one of us in here has to make that choice. Not just the choice we make one time, but a choice we make every day for the rest of our lives. If you're here this evening, maybe you feel like you're Naaman in the very beginning of chapter 5. That you've got a terrible situation, you want healing, and you don't know where to turn. Well, we'd love to study with you, talk with you, pray with you. If you're ready to become a Christian, we'd love to baptize you so that you could be added to the Lord's church and so that we could rejoice with you as brothers or sisters. And maybe that you feel like you've acted a little more like Gehazi lately. Maybe there have been some things that have been drawing you out of the fellowship of, of God's church, of God's family. If there's any way we can help you, let's all remember the lesson of Naaman and live lives of simple obedience. All of us have a great deal to reflect on. If we can help